Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case through the trial and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John took us through the questioning of several trial witnesses, including Mella Kaufman, the woman who considered herself to be Susan Berman's daughter, and Doug Oliver, inarguably the most hostile witness to take the stand during the four and a half years of court proceedings in this case. In this episode, Lewin offers some bold thoughts on how the defense should have argued their case. We also review the testimony of several more witnesses in the trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal and sometimes you can hear heavy traffic rushing by. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes, during this episode, I will identify the installments of the Jury Duty podcast that cover these parts of the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. We now rejoin my conversation with John Lewin as he takes a step back from our discussion of witness testimony to return to his critique of the defense litigation strategy in the trial and offers what he thought their strategy should have been. He begins this section by returning to his bemusement and bewilderment by the choices of Dick DeGuerin and David Chesnoff in their second round of opening statements that came after the pandemic hiatus. One of the things that I was really surprised about with the defense reopening is that they'd already seen our entire opening. They were already in a situation where they had seen a few witnesses testify. They had seen our reopening, and they'd had 14 months to learn about the case, things they should have known but apparently didn't know during round one of the trial. Yet, they get up there, and it's just almost impossible for me to understand. They get up and what do they do? They start attacking Cassie. Dick talks about the fact that, you know, he's not going to say she doesn't belong in medical school, but she doesn't belong in medical school. Bob got her in. Untrue, completely devoid of any facts. But more than that, even if true, not helpful to any theme they could possibly have. He then goes on to talk about how she was missing all of this time in medical school and that she had said that she was sick, and there's no indication she's sick. I'm thinking as I'm listening to this, are you kidding me? Your client is physically and emotionally abusing this woman. 
she's making up stuff left and right, why would you be pointing out the idea that somehow her missing school is an indication that she's a drug addict? What it's an indication of is that she had been abused by her husband. The reopening was as bad and incompetent as what they did the first round. I was absolutely shocked. Then they continued to go with, it's as if they found a tagline they liked. No evidence is evidence. And after explaining how there's not one bit of physical evidence that puts Bob Durst in the house, what is the point of that argument? Your client, your theory, your position in the case is that Bob found the body. He was absolutely in the house. So all you're doing is saying there's no evidence to prove my client was in the house, but he was in the house. I was shocked that after 14 months, where they had nothing to do but really go back and fine-tune and analyze their case, to recalibrate, to reassess, they did nothing. They went on the same ineffective defense that they were using before the pandemic. And obviously, as you are aware from having seen it and from the jurors who heard it, it was beyond ineffective. Besides trying to get Bob to confess, what would the best possible case have been for that? Oh, very simple. What they should have done is they should have challenged everything. No stipulation on the handwriting. No stipulation on finding the body. They have tens of millions of dollars. And one of the slimy aspects of the world that we live in is that if you have enough money, you can get an expert witness to say almost anything. And if you have a whole lot of money, you can get a credible expert to say almost anything. So what they should have done is they should have hired a witness to say, listen, that's not Bob's handwriting. And you know what? It is contrary to what the prosecution expert says. It was not the handwriting, the cadaver note, was not naturally executed, meaning it was a forgery, that somebody was attempting to forge Bob's handwriting. That's what the defense should have been. They also should have never stipulated to the recordings. They, again, could have gotten experts to come in, talk about the technology that's available, how you can basically make anybody say whatever it is they want to say, blah, blah, blah. That's what should have been done. The defense would have been, I didn't write the cadaver note, and I didn't say those things. They were edited. And you could have had very credible experts get up there regarding the the recording, and you could have even just had them say, listen, this is what can be done. This is how you, what you can do with special effects and with editing. And the idea, you don't even have to say this is what happened here. You just need to present that up there. That would have been the better defense. But that would have taken a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of planning. You have to know those areas very well to make those arguments. They didn't know those areas. I then ask Lewin to return to the discussion of the trial witnesses, and we begin this section with his reflections on the testimony of a good friend of Susan Berman, Susie Harmon. Susie Harmon as a witness. Tell me about her. Susie Harmon was a close friend of Susan's. We found her to be very, very credible. She was another forfeiture by wrongdoing statement, meaning Susan had said uh, Susan Berman had said to Susie Harmon that, you know, Bob had made certain damaging admissions. One of the things that the defense, again, never seemed to understand is that the fact that Susan told each of these witnesses different things was not a sign of either a lack of credibility of the witnesses 
or a lack of memory of the witnesses, it was because Susan was very careful about who she told and what she told. So depending on the closeness of the relationship, depending on what the listener would have thought about Susan, she might not say anything. This is why she was very hesitant in what she said to Ricky Ring, because she knew that Ricky Ring, if she would have said anything, was going to go straight to the cops. This is why with certain of these witnesses, including Susie, she would say slightly different versions of what happened. I found her to be very credible. She was another witness that the team was not sure if it was going to be helpful to call her. I was very confident that she was going to do a great job. I think she did a great job. Why was the team reluctant to call her? Because like a lot of Susie Berman's friends, she was a difficult witness to control. She had things she wanted to get out and say. And I think that there was a concern of, well, do we really need her? And will she do more harm than good? My position was, listen, do not be afraid of any of these witnesses. We believe everything they're telling us. We know it's all true. Trust the witness and trust the evidence. And by the way, trust your experience with these guys. They're going to get up on cross, and they're going to make it six times worse than it was on direct. And that's, in fact, what they did. What were the key pieces of evidence in her testimony? Susie Harmon was very important because she had a very strong memory of having had a conversation with Susie Berman years ago, where Susie Harmon had been inside of her hair salon. She was a hairstylist. And Susie Berman was explaining to her that Bob had had a confrontation with his wife and that she had fallen down the stairs and died. She also mentioned during this conversation that she had, and I can't remember whether she told Susie Harmon that she had called the dean or that she had just helped Bob with an alibi. But again, it was another permutation on helping Bob with a false alibi. So she was important. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Next, I turn John's attention to two witnesses, Lev Ginsberg and Ryan Ehrlich, whose testimony was related to the conditional witness examination of Susan Berman friend Linda Obst. Lewin also discussed Obst's examination in episodes 5 and 7 of this season. And of course, we did a deep dive on her testimony in season 2, episode 7 of Jury Duty. Two witnesses related to Linda Obst, Lev Ginsburg and Ryan Ehrlich. So let's go to Linda Obst for a second. And this was, again, this goes back to a fundamental strategic flaw and tactical mistakes that the defense made with not just Linda Oates, but other witnesses. But it's really apparent and instructive when you look at Linda Oates. Linda Oates is a world-famous Hollywood producer. She has had an incredible amount of success. And it was very clear, without question, from evidence that was uncontroverted, that she did not want to be involved in this case. Now, that's really important to understand. Because if a witness absolutely does not want to be involved in the case, then you cannot make an argument that this person is looking for their 15 minutes of fame. So 
Linda Owens was very close with Susie Berman when they were in New York. Linda worked for the New York Times and actually left to move to Los Angeles and became, basically went into the producing Hollywood world. And her first big project was, in essence, helping Susan, the company that she was working for, had optioned Easy Street for a lot of money. And her job was to help Susan make that a script. Now, Linda would later say, you know, years later, that one of the issues that she didn't know at the time was Susie was much too close to the story to do it. And Linda Oakes of 10, 20, 30 years later would have known that and would have understood that this was never going to work. Susan was not the person to write this screenplay. But she didn't know it at the time. So she and Susan worked extremely hard trying to get this thing done. And that involved basically meeting day in and day out, going through Linda, learning about Susan's life story, et cetera. Linda did not recall it at the time. But years later, when she was interviewed by Jarecki for The Jinx, after that interview, she ended up having a memory that Susan had told her that she had called Albert Einstein pretending to be Kathy. Now, the defense decided that they were going to treat that statement by Linda Oates as a lie. Linda Oates is lying. Or, completely inconsistent with that, well, if she's not lying, she's mistaken, and that memory was implanted to her. Those are two mutually inconsistent theories, and worse than that, none of them make sense for Linda. That was what their plan was. So if we look at what happened, Linda ends up remembering this information. She does not want to come forward with it. So obviously, if she was trying to lie, and if she had some motivation, she would have instantly said, here's what happened. But she did the opposite. She remembers. She ends up going to her lawyer, and her lawyer says, you got you got to come forward with this information. She doesn't like that. She goes to Jarecki and Smirling. They tell her, you got to call John Lewin and give him this information. She doesn't like that. Her favorite restaurant to eat at is a place called Squirrel. Squirrel is a very popular restaurant in Los Angeles. Just to show what a small world life can be, the owner of Squirrel is a very popular Los Angeles chef, Jessica, and Jessica's husband is Ryan Ehrlich, who was a young prosecutor in our office. For further coincidences, which, again, you can't make this up, Jessica attended a small private school in Palos Verdes called Chadwick. That is the same school that Susie Berman and Paul Kaufman attended, and by coincidence, is the high school that my two kids just graduated from in the past couple of years. So these little relationships are all overlapping, et cetera. So when Linda doesn't hear what she wants, she ends up heats every every week at Squirrel. She goes to Ryan Ehrlich, who she knows is a prosecutor. Ryan's a young prosecutor. She tells him the story. He says, hey, you have to call John Lewis. Now, I did not know Ryan at this point. And also, at this time, there was now some information. I think this is after the case had been filed. But it was now in the media that I was handling the case. She still doesn't want to do it. So basically, Linda is being constantly directed, and this is true of a lot of wealthy, powerful people. Wealthy, powerful people, when they go to a lawyer for advice, what they really want is they want the lawyer to tell them what they want to hear, okay? They're looking for advice, but only if it's the advice they want. So Linda, the advice she's looking for is not you need to come forward. 
the advice he's looking for is you don't need to say anything because she doesn't want to get involved. So eventually, she ends up, she's asked everybody in her life, they're all saying she has to come to me, and she finally comes to me. She testifies. The defense in their cross-examination, and it was terrible. Dick DeGaron did the cross on, on her, and what he tried to do was he tried to first argue she was lying, which makes no sense for the reasons that I've said. Then she tried to argue that she was mistaken and didn't remember. She ripped him up on that. Then tried to argue that she had um, implanted memories and she had some psychology training. She destroyed him on that. That's what happened. So we put Linda on, but then we also put on Ryan and Lev as witnesses to prior consistent statements. So their importance was that they affirmed that Linda had said to them the exact same story she testified to, and more than that, had made it very clear she did not want to testify in the trial. So that really eliminated any idea that, in fact, what's going on is is that she's looking for her 15 minutes of fame, etc. I then asked Lewin about the testimony of Susan Berman's hairdresser, David Eisenman. David Eisenman. So David Eisenman was brought in because he was Susan's hairstylist. Susan owed him a bunch of money. She was telling him things about Bob Durst, that she could not get a hold of him, that she was upset with him, that she was hoping there was going to be money coming. There is a couple-of-week period where there is the alleged vacation at the Chateau Marmont and then the trip up to San Francisco and consultations with architects, et cetera. All of that never happened. It's a creation of Bob Durst. But basically, during that time period, Susan had an appointment to get her hair done from David Eisenman in Palm Springs. And that was at the same time, on the same day, she was supposed to be meeting with Bob up in San Francisco and the architect uh, or the lawyer, et cetera. So the important part of Eisenman was he went to the timeline, but more importantly, at the time we called him, he basically was able to talk about Susan's financial situation, some of her comments about Bob Durst. She was upset that he hadn't given him money, etc. John and I then discussed the testimonies of two LAPD detectives during the trial. Brad Roberts and Paul Coulter. Brad Roberts was one of the original detectives who responded to the crime scene from West L.A. So if you remember, this was not originally an RHB handle, meaning that the case was handled by West L.A., and he was one of the original detectives who was handling the case. So he was important because he came to the crime scene. He was the first detective who worked the case, and so he gave us an outline of what they knew, where they were, etc., Paul Coulter, along with his partner, Jerry Stevens, they took over the case in, I think, around January 11th or so of 2001. They took over the case a couple of weeks after the murder, three weeks approximately. And Paul was then the person who worked the case for the rest of the time. Jerry Stevens ended up retiring, and Paul was the one who ended up eventually handing the case over to George Shanley. So... Paul was, again, important because he filled in the investigative chronology, and also he had spoken to Turecki and Smerling. He was the one who had given them the copy of the cadaver note, certain photographs, etc. In the next part of today's conversation, John discusses the testimony of Robert Durst's brother, Douglas. So tell me about bringing Douglas Durst 
to the stand. Bob has a deep hatred for Douglas Durst, more than anybody in this entire case. Now, there were times toward the end of the case where I used to, you know, make the joke, and it's not funny, but I used to make a joke that if Bob had five bullets, he'd shoot Douglas five times. But by the end of the trial, if Bob had five bullets, he'd shoot Douglas four times, then there'd be one for me. I ended up making some progress in the Bob Durst, I hate that guy club. So the importance of Douglas Durst was that in the end, and I didn't know what the defense was going to be. I told you before that the defense that I would have used if I were them was I would have argued that the cadaver note was a phony, was forged, that the interviews were edited. But if you do that, you then have to produce. For it to work, you have to be able to say, okay, who did it? And it's going gonna, it's gonna to require someone who has a whole lot of money and a whole lot of resources and power. So I always figured that in the end, what Bob was going to do is that he was going to end up either saying that Douglas framed him or once he stipulated everything, I always thought there was a 20, and at one time I thought it was probably 40% chance that Bob was going to get up in cross-examination and was going to say that he killed Kathy and that Douglas and his father were involved. It would have been a complete lie, but that Bob was basically going to say, you know, if I'm going down, I'm taking my family with me. Now, Douglas was completely cooperative from day one. And the narrative in the media, and particularly with a certain lawyer who represents the McCormick family, that there's some wide-ranging conspiracy that involves Douglas Durst, Mike Strzok, pick, pick all your people, Susie Giordano, Debbie Cheriton, maybe me, etc., to hide Kathy's body from her family. It's absurd. There's nothing to support it. But one of the things that is yours is that Douglas, very early on, while Kathy was missing, allowed Gilberta to go into the South Salem house, and he then lied and told the cops that there had been a burglary. That is inconsistent with somebody trying to protect their brother. And in fact, I think that what was going on with Douglas, he was in a terrible position, because there's no way that his family, that his father in particular, would have allowed them to cooperate with the police to inculpate Bob. I mean, you know, he wasn't going to do it. So that was the idea that Douglas was out participating in a conspiracy to protect Bob. It was absurd given their relationship, and it was demonstrated by his conduct that he had done just the opposite. So I wanted the jury to be able to see Douglas just in case later on Bob got up and said, I knew by then he was not going to be arguing that he didn't write the cadaver note, et cetera. He already stipulated. But I was still concerned that Bob would get up during his testimony and would say, yeah, I killed Kathy and, and Douglas and Seymour helped me. And although that wouldn't have changed anything about Bob's guilt, I didn't think it was right, and I wanted to make sure that the jury was able to see who Douglas was. Douglas was nothing but cooperative the entire time. He did not want to testify. He was terrified of testifying. And it was personally embarrassing for him. I mean, imagine you run one of the most respected real estate firms in the country. You, it's a third, fourth generation firm now. You spent your entire life developing it, your father, your grandfather, and then you get caught up in this stuff. So he didn't want to be involved. 
but he understood that that's what needed to happen, and he was cooperative start to finish. And by the way, when you have really wealthy witnesses, there are many things that he could have done to make our lives difficult. As an example, had he or directly decided, you know what, we're just going to go to the Bahamas. We're going to go to some place outside the United States, and we're going to stay there during the pendency of the trial. I wouldn't be able to do anything. That was why we thought it was very important to call him. I thought that he was a very compelling witness. And I think that when you talk to the jurors, I think the jurors understood that they didn't for a moment think that he had any involvement in either Kathy's death or the cover-up. Now, that being said, that does not mean that, and particularly Seymour, the Durst family, Seymour's number one priority was not doing what could be done to effectively prosecute whoever was responsible for Kathy. It's very clear that his number one priority was making sure that his son was protected. And although that's not what any of us would like, it's very interesting. How many people do you know that are going to participate in conduct which is going to lead one of their family members to prison? In my 30 years, pretty low number. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin shares his strategy for introducing at the Berman trial material from Robert Durst's trial for the murder of Morris Black in Galveston, Texas. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>